0: Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning as we come to sit under God's word and later we'll partake of his table. Uh, if you're a visitor here, my name is Penny. I'm the pastor. It's, uh, I'd love to meet you after the service. if I haven't had a chance to meet you before. Um, if you are a visitor, if you're a guest, welcome. We're, we're really glad that you're here. You'd spend your Sunday with us as we worship our God. If you do have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your order of service. The passage is printed there before you. For the last few weeks, we've been going through the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. We're almost done. We're we're nearing the end of these. And, And one of the reasons why we've been doing this, if you remember, is because we're trying to understand more of who Jesus says he is, not just our... Um, theological or ideological ideas that we have about him, but actually what he says about who he is. And so that's one of the reasons we're looking at them. But but one of the things that I've mentioned the last few weeks that we need to continually remember and put before us is that these I am statements are not ahistorical. Meaning that they they didn't just drop out of heaven as these theological categories for us to dissect Jesus with, but they actually are situated in particular circumstances and contexts. And so we have Jesus speaking to his disciples in the midst of fear or concern. He has people coming, questioning or doubting, and so he's trying to answer them. And that's what we have this morning his disciples are coming to him in in a time in a situation where they were filled with anxiety and concern worry and doubt and they come and Jesus makes this theological statement I am the way and the truth and the life and he is saying it to them as a way of providing them comfort and peace and that's what he's doing for us he's speaking to us comfort and peace in these words and so let's hear them beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want you to think about a time in your life where uh, you experienced uh, a departure where you left something that was very familiar very comfortable Something that you had known or maybe something that someone that you knew someone that you were very comfortable with a loved one Maybe they they went away for a time. I want you to think about an instance like this Maybe it's uh, a job relocation you move moved from a city that you're comfortable with a place that you love to be and you're moving to a new city or maybe you're staying within the city but you're moving from a profession a, a job from one job to another one that you knew and that you were good at and you understood and now you're moving to this other vocation that that you really have no idea how to do or maybe kids it's the the time when you went on your first overnight camp your first time away from mom and dad or or maybe it's when Students you went off to college for the first time or or parents when you sent your kids off to college and you had this empty house I want you to think about one of those times Now I want you to think about the emotions that you experienced in those times Well, if you're like me, I'm sure that you experience both excitement and anticipation but also mixed with unsurety and anxiety worry and concern I remember when Kat and I left Greenville, South Carolina, to move to St. Louis. We felt that the Lord was leading and directing us to move to St. Louis so that I could go to seminary and that I could one day become a pastor. But we were leaving this place. We were confident God was calling us, but we were leaving this place that was so familiar and so comfortable. I remember on that day when we were ready to pull out of town, all our worldly possessions were in a truck. We had our then less than two-week-old daughter Lane in tow, right? We're about to move to the center of the country, which felt like in the middle of absolutely nowhere, to this place where we didn't know anyone and we had no church and I had no job from this place where we had all of these things. Friends who walked through life with us and cared for us. A church that loved and supported us. A job that that I knew how to do and I I think I was okay at, you know. And we're going to all these unknowns. And I remember on that day getting ready to leave. Now, I'm not much of a crier. um, But I wept. I mean, I was so sad and broken at the thought of leaving of leaving this place that was familiar, and good, and sweet, to go to this place that we had no idea what it would be like. We're filled with sadness, but also anxiety. I mean, what if I don't get a job? What if I'm not good at school? What if I don't have friends? Cat will have friends, but what if no one likes me, right? Like, (laughs) these are all the things going through my head on that day, the unsurety, the anxiety, the worry. You guys have experienced that before. The anxiety, the concern, the worry of a new place, a new time, a new experience. The the disciples know this as well. In chapter 13, Jesus has said to them, I'm about to leave. I'm about to go away. And Peter, who I love Peter in his brashness and boldness says, Jesus, I will follow you to the very end, to the very death. And Jesus tells him, well, Peter, you're actually going to deny me. And so hearing about this denial and hearing that Jesus is going to go away, the disciples are filled with worry and anxiety and concern. And Jesus says to them in the midst of this, you know where I am going. That's what he says in verse 4 of our passage this morning. You know where I'm going, but listen to Thomas' anxiety-filled response. In verse 5, he says, Lord, We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? How can we know? You've been leading us and guiding us, but now you're leaving us. How can we know the way? Jesus has been directing them, but now with his departure, his his immediate departure, they're filled with concern. They'll be left alone. They're unsure of the way forward. Anxiety. We know this anxiety, this fear, this worry. Sometimes in our lives, it feels like we're driving through an uncharted country with no map and no sign and no direction, right? These times of vocational and relational and familial anxiety that pops up from time to time. We know this experience and we wonder aloud, Lord, where are you leading? We wonder, God, I don't know the way. Well, it's in response to that anxiety that Jesus speaks. In verse 6, he says, excuse me, in verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why can our hearts have peace and calm? Because Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. You may not know the way, but I am the way. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let them have peace and comfort. See, that's what Jesus is doing by making this wonderful statement about who he is. He is exploring, he is expressing to his disciples and to us that we can have peace. Peace in the midst of concern, peace in the midst of anxiety. That's what he's doing, he's bringing to us peace. And he's doing it by showing us a particular path. I know your uh, bulletin says a particular faith, but um, I didn't get the change into Kathy in time. It's a particular path. That's what Jesus is leading us along. This statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's a particular path towards peace. And there's a few things about this path that we need to explore. And the first is that it's exclusive. It's exclusive now I would imagine that when we think about the exclusivity of the Christian faith and the exclusive claims of Jesus this is the passage that we go to right imagine that uh, that if if I asked you or you are having a conversation with a friend about the claims of Christ this might be where you would turn Jesus saying I'm the way the truth and the life and for good reason right he he makes this exclusive claim and this is, a, this is an important passage for us to turn to because it shows that these exclusive claims of Jesus are not just the product of his disciples, but they're actually rooted and grounded in him. That's what he says in verse 6, no one comes to the Father but through me. Not some can, not that there's a loophole, not, not anyone, no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. Jesus. Now listen, I know that this exclusive claim, it's, it's not well received in our culture, right? Like, I'm, I'm not telling you anything new there. And so it would be easy for us to hear, well, anyone who would claim an exclusive claim like this is arrogant or intolerant. And we might hear that and, and it may cause us in the midst of that pressure to want to acquiesce or to flex, but, but as Christians, we can't flex on this. You see, this is this is the foundation of our faith, that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father but through him. We can't flex on this, that, that there is one Lord and one faith and one way to the Father, and it is Jesus. But maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Maybe you're exploring the claims of Christ. And so maybe, maybe these, uh, this phrase, this exclusive aspect to jesus's statement is is difficult for you to embrace because maybe you've actually thought of jesus as simply a moral teacher or a wise sage but the problem with reducing him to simply these things which he is right he is wisdom he is he is moral he is a great teacher the problem with reducing him to this is that this is not how jesus presents himself Jesus doesn't say that he is one among many. He says he is the only savior, the only way, the only truth. And it's it's not out of arrogance that he says this. It's it's out of love. It's out of care and concern for us. Love for his disciples and love for you and me. It is love that he speaks these words because he does not want us. He does want to leave us in our anxiety and our worries, but instead he wants to give us peace. And by making this sort of exclusive statement, that's what Jesus is doing. He is leading us along the path that leads to the peace that we are seeking after, the peace that we desire. But listen, this this path, this exclusive pointing, it's not just directing us to himself. It is that. But it's doing more than that. He's actually also directing us away from those things that would lead us away from Jesus, from divergent paths. So this path of peace, it's not just exclusive, it's also directional. It's directional, and that, that's logical. The implication of his exclusive statement is that, that all other paths are divergent. They won't lead to life, but they'll actually lead to death. And we know this, right? We experience this, these things that pull at us, that don't just want our affections or our desires or, or our thoughts, but want our very lives. There are theological ideals. There are philosophical uh, teachings. There are people in our lives who have a wonderful plan for us that have nothing to do with Jesus. And what these things will do to us is, as David Foster Wallace said, they will eat us alive. David Foster Wallace, uh, some of you may be familiar with him. He's a, a famous postmodern writer and essayist. Uh, he was a professor of English lit. He gave a very famous commencement address in which he was making observations about the world around us. He was looking at the different things that our culture uh, runs towards and pulls towards. And he talks about money and things and beauty and sexual allure and power, and he observes that our culture worships these things. That, that's actually his word, that we worship them sex and power and money, that we give ourselves to them, and when we give ourselves to them, they eat us alive. And what's amazing is that, if you know anything about Wallace was that he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a believer when he made that statement, when he made that observation. And sadly to say that that he didn't find the peace that he was actually looking for and longing for before he took his own life. But but in making this statement he understood with great honesty this observation that that these things they are actually divergent paths. They are not the paths towards life and peace. They are the paths towards Death. He understood the futility in seeking a life in these things. And that's what Jesus is directing us away from. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's leading us away from the things that will eat us alive, and he's leading us to the place that there, where there is life, himself. That's what he says in verse 3. He goes to prepare a place for you, and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. Jesus is leading us away from the things that will bring death, and he's leading us towards the source of life, himself. And so this pathway of peace, it, it's, it's directional, it's exclusive, but, but it's not just that. It's also all-encompassing. Now, now listen, that, those two phrases, all-encompassing and exclusive, Those two things seem contradictory to one another, right? Like, How can something be exclusive and all-encompassing at the same time? So we have to ask the question, like a friend of mine likes to ask, in regards to what? (laughs) In regards to what? Well, in regards to Jesus' statements about salvation, he is exclusive. But in regards to our lives, his statement is all-encompassing. See, that's what he says. One way, one truth, one life. So he's saying that every portion of our life is to be oriented towards this way, this truth, this life. So, so think about it like this. If, if the banner over the Christian life is the way, the truth, and the life, I want you to think about what part of your existence and experience as a human does not fall under way, truth, and life. I'll give you a second. It shouldn't be that hard. Because every part of us falls under way, truth, and life, Right? Every part of us, our words and our thoughts, our actions and our desires, our vocations and our children, our families and our spouse, everything falls under way, truth and life. And so what Jesus is saying to his people is that as you follow me along this path, as you follow me and you steer clear of these divergent paths, I want all of you. not just some of you, all of you, every aspect of your humanity, every aspect of your being what he says in verse 12 after our passage. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. His expectation is that our lives would actually reflect his life, that they would be lived in a way that reflects him. But what does this mean? Like, how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, there's lots of things we could talk about, right? I mean, way, truth, and life, like, we could talk about anything. But one thing that I think that it means... uh, one thing that I want us to talk about is the fact that that it means that we measure every experience by him. Every experience in this world, in our culture, we measure by his truth, his way, his life. And so this means that oftentimes it's going to look like we're going to have to affirm things in our world, but we're also going to have to challenge. We're going to have to affirm what is beautiful and good and right, but we're also going to have to challenge what is dark and evil and despairing. This is why I can actually quote a guy like David Foster Wallace positively. I can affirm his observations while at the same time challenging his at best agnostic view towards the Lord. And so we look at our world, we look at our vocations, we look at the things that we come in contact with, and we affirm what is true, but we challenge what is deceptive. But it's not just in our world that we have this posture, but we have this posture of affirmation challenge in our own hearts. You see, we can affirm the good work that God has given us as a gift from Him, but, but we also need to challenge why I think I need more money. We can affirm the desire for love and relationship, to love and to be loved, but, but we need to challenge why we think that all of our hopes will be satisfied in this one person. We need to affirm security and care, but we need to challenge the propensity in our hearts to want to control every single aspect of our family. See, when we do this, when we engage in this affirmation and challenge in our own hearts, but also in the world, what we are doing is we are seeking to bring the lordship of Jesus over everything in us, in over every experience that we have, that we are affirming what is true and, what is, and we are challenging what is evil. Francis Schaeffer once said that all truth is God's truth. And so whether it is spoken by those who are promoting the Lord Jesus or those who are actually speaking against him, we can affirm what is true, while at the same time challenging what is false. Jesus' statement is inv- inviting us to do that, to live lives that, that actually come in full submission to his lordship. But what's amazing about this, as he leads us along this path, this exclusive and and directional and all-encompassing path, is that's not a never-ending path. It doesn't just keep going on and on and on, it actually has a conclusion, and it concludes in a person, in a relationship. Now listen, uh, we we live in a world that is uh, driven by efficiency. Okay, we, we, I'm not gonna ask you to pull out your phones, but all of us probably have them, right? Uh, all of y'all have phones. It's whether how smart the phone is or not, right? That's, uh, and, and we love these sorts of things. They're actually very, very helpful, right? Texting and emailing and those sorts of things. You know, I'm running late, sweetie. I just send her a text, right? It's really helpful. And these efficiencies help us in, in our day-to-day life, in our work, and in the ways in which we interact with different things. It, it helps us to make the most use of our time. But, but the problem with that is that at times, we take this propensity towards efficiency and we, we inadvertently or we unhealthily apply it to things that we should never apply it to. Let me give you an example. Do you know what's not efficient? Y'all. Me. People. Relationships. You want to see inefficiency? Get into a relationship, right? Like like they are messy and they are difficult and they are hard and they are dirty, right? They are anything but efficient, right? Yes. (laughs) We hit all sorts of roadblocks all the time. But we, we try to take these, this propensity towards wanting to do whatever's next and do it as fast as we possibly can, and we apply it in inappropriate ways to our relationships with one another. And when we do this, we actually devalue the importance of people. So let me give you an example of how I saw this play out. Not quite a year ago, in October, we are still living in St. Louis, and my family were at Red Robin because it's my birthday month. My birthdays in October and Cole's birthdays in october. and And if you're part of the Red Robin Rewards program, you know that every month during your birthday month, you get an email that says you get a free burger. So this is great, right? So you know, f- three kids, you know, it's like this is date night for our family, right? We get a free burger, so we're going to go to Red Robin, so that's where we went. It's October. We show up at Red Robin, and greeting us at the table is something I had never seen before. It was this little iPad. It was a tablet. I, I don't know if they've made it to the red robin here yet. We haven't been yet. We'll go in October when it's my birthday month. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but there it was greeting us, you know, and you can watch TV, you can play video games on it. We weren't gonna do those sorts of things, but then the waiter comes over, you know. My thought is like, oh, who's watching TV? You know, I can't even have a conversation. But then he comes over and says, Well, this is what it else what else it can do. You can order your food. And you want extra fries because, you know, it's all you can eat French fries at Red Robin. So, you know, order some more fries. You don't have to call us over, type it in. You need a refill, type it in. When the night is over, swipe your card and leave. You don't even have to tell us. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. This is amazing because I don't have to talk to this waiter or waitress a single time during this meal. I'm not going to have this person coming over and interrupting our conversation. Do you want some more drink? Is your food good as we're stuffed full? You know, I'm not going to have to deal with this. So the end of the night comes, right? or it's time to leave. I take my Red Robin card and I swipe it because I need my free burger. And I look and the burger is still on the bill. This is weird. So I hit the back button, I clearly did something wrong. I swipe it again, but it's still there. So I hit the back button, I type in my phone number, because your phone number is tied to your account, because maybe that's what I need to do, but, but the burger's still there. So I hit the back button, and then swipe my card, and type in my number, and then I type in my number, and swipe the card. I'm trying all these different ways, because for goodness sakes, I'm getting my free burger. <laughs> it was amazing. For the life of me, I couldn't figure out how to do it. As efficient as this process was supposed to be, it could not solve my problem. You know what I needed? need a person and so i hit the button and the little red light came on and overcame the manager and the waitress they said what's your what's going on how can we help i tell them what happens they take my card they come back and the burger is gone i need a person and that's what jesus gives us that's what we need we need a person a relationship and that's what he gives to us That's what he gives us. He doesn't simply give us theological doctrine and truisms because doctrine alone, friends, doesn't comfort. And truth by itself will not give us peace. The author of the book of James, James said that the demons, they believe the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, but it does not bring them peace. What does it do? It causes them to shudder. Truth alone will not bring us peace And so don't ignore Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That in saying this, he is pointing to a person, not a way, not a truth, not a life, but I am what is true, what is right, what is life. These are not philosophical categories or moralistic ideals. They are personal. They're personal. Listen, truth apart from a relationship with Jesus is what Chesterton called suicide of the mind it doesn't exist it doesn't exist no life apart from relationship with jesus will have peace or comfort it is only found in loving relationship with jesus but what's amazing is that jesus doesn't just point to himself he points beyond himself he points to the father right in verse 6 he says that no one comes to the father but through me In verse 7, he says, if you know the Father, you will know me. In verse 2, he says, he goes to prepare a place for us. Where? In my Father's house. In my Father's house. A place reserved for us. What awaits us is dwelling with Jesus in his Father's presence. So he says in verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may also be. Jesus has gone away, but he's returning. He's gone away, but he will return. And when he returns, he will confirm these theological understandings. But but he will give us something more than that. He will give us himself. And he will lead us to the Father. He will welcome us into this relationship that gives us peace. It's what we need. We need a person, a relationship. And until we have it, we will not find peace. You know, that same month of October, before we went uh, to Red Robin, Kat and I went to Maine, went to Maine. We had never been to Maine, and I always wanted to go. So we took a few days, and we, we went up to Portland, and it was great. We ate wonderful seafood and had great drinks, and we went out on a boat, and we saw islands and spent time in Portland. I mean, it was, it was a great time, and, and we, we went, just the two of us. So that was nice, right? Um, we love our children, but, but it was nice. Um, and, um, <clears throat> but, but, you know, our kids had experienced this before. We, we had experienced these sorts of things, because almost every year since we've had children, Kat and I have tried to get away, just the two of us, for at least a night, maybe two. And so our kids are kind of accustomed to staying with, with people, with friends who are not us while we're away. But even though they've experienced this before, on, on this trip, we kind of got the sense that there was a little bit of nervousness. A little bit of anxiety about us leaving. Well, we left anyway. Right? We didn't cancel our trip. We, <laughs> we still went, but, but we made sure not to go completely off the grid. Right? We, we, I didn't respond to email, but, but we made sure to call them and they could hear our voice through the phone. And, and we FaceTime with them so they could see our faces and know that we hadn't really left them. Right? We're, we're coming back. And, and these, these little glimpses of us helped to, to calm them. But it wasn't really until we were with them in their presence that they knew true peace. See, we came home, and they were already in bed. They were already asleep. And so they awoke in the morning, and they found us sitting in the kitchen, waiting for them to eat breakfast together. And it was then that when they saw us face to face, no longer through an iPad, but with their own eyes, and heard our voice no longer through a phone, but with their own ears, that, that they knew peace the peace of a person, the peace of presence, the peace of relationship. And that's the truth about us. That is what Jesus gives us. That though he is gone and he has sent his spirit, and though he has promised to return, and though we even now have care and comfort and peace, we will not have it in its full until he returns. And he is returning And in his returning, that's what we will have. We will dwell with him, and we will be present with him, and we will know his peace. Friends, that's what this table points us to. This is what this table points us to as we drink the cup, as we hold it, and we smell it, and we taste it, as we feel the bread, and we ingest it, that as we have these physical expressions of what Jesus has done on our behalf, they point us to the fact that Jesus is coming again. And that in his coming, he will comfort us. They they comfort us in knowing the lengths to which he would go in order to provide for us this path. But they also comfort us in knowing the lengths to which he would go to bring us into relationship with him. A relationship that we have been longing for. That's what this table does for us. It reminds us that we have peace now, but that we have peace to come. A peace that will be made full when we will be in his presence. When we will know with great uncertainty and we will see with our eyes and we will hear with our ears the one who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The giver of peace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and mercy to us. And we ask now that as we will come to your table in a few minutes that you would comfort us with your care that you would assure us of your love and you would grant us your peace even as we await that day when we will see our Lord Jesus face to face. Do this we pray in Jesus' name.